For Saturday, the 16th of May, I'm Randy Coure. This is What's Up the Sports Podcast on Facebook and Twitter at What's Up Podcast. So, another day, another week, and lo and behold, depending on where you are, another month of self-isolation. We're now over two months since the majority of public facilities have been closed due to coronavirus, and there still seems to be a lot of uncertainty of when we can see a return of how things used to be. I'm really thrilled to have Dr. Kathan Shankardas as today's guest. He's a professor at Wilfrid Laurier University in Waterloo, Ontario, and is an epidemiologist specializing in social epidemiology, which is uh, the study of social factors contributing to one's health and well-being. Dr. Shankardas will share his thoughts on the sports world as well as his uh, field in a general sense. Hope you stick around. Thanks so much for the download. This is What's Up, the Sports Podcast. Oh, what a night. Tonight, it feels like. As you've been hearing in the news, sports leagues throughout the world are looking to salvage their respective seasons, whether it is already in progress or was about to start. Uh, the reality is, is that over two months since the first confirmed case of coronavirus in North America, uh, it's still a very fluid situation, this pandemic altogether, and there's no indi- uh, clear indication of when sports leagues, let alone the majority of schools, retail outlets, the like, will reopen. Uh, Dr. Kathan Shankardas is a professor of epidemiology from Wilfrid Laurier University, and he is here to share his thoughts and expertise on a slew of topics relating to this pandemic. Dr. Shankardas, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Happy to be here, Randy. I really hope uh, you and your family are uh, doing well, and we'll be talking about uh, sports and how it relates to uh, its operation either after the or during uh, the pandemic, but uh, in our conversations leading up to today, you mentioned that you specialize in social epidemiology, as there are several branches of the field. Um, what is the role, uh, in uh, in your words, of a social epidemiologist? And if you can, describe a typical day or even uh, your curriculum, if you can, as a, as a professor at Laurier. Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm going to, I'll sort of take it back to the, the basics, which is epidemiology, um, which is the study of epidemics. And I think one misconception is that this involves solely studying outbreaks uh, like COVID-19 uh, or like Outbreak the Movie um, <laughs> or SARS and all that. But, I, you know, I think an analogy to, to help better understand what we do is that just like a doctor or a nurse are concerned with health at an individual level, Uh, diagnosing and treating health problems. An epidemiologist is concerned with health at a population level. So they're not just thinking about outbreaks, which affect populations of people, but there are clinical epidemiologists who think about, you know, whether certain clinical decisions are associated with better or worse outcomes in a population. Uh, Chronic disease epidemiologists think about how cancers and heart disease and asthma are distributed in the population and and what the causes are. And as a social epidemiologist, I'm mainly thinking about how how social factors like, for example, race or gender or income uh, affect our health. Uh, And also um, uh, how decisions at the social level. So oftentimes you think about the actions of a government, um, how they're associated with changes in population health. Uh, In particular, I'm really interested in the role of chronic stress um, in our lives uh, because that is actually a very social thing because the stress that that people experience, uh, it's all relative to what's going on in society and their position in society um, and all the different roles they play. Uh, So, yeah, I'd say the role of an epidemiologist is to study population health and inform decisions about population health. Uh, So in practice, um, as a professor at at Wilfrid Laurier University, um, uh, you know, I'm teaching students, undergraduate students, in our um, health sciences program, uh, and I also supervise graduate students in our community psychology program, uh, so helping to train sort of the next generation of scientists. And then, of course, um, in addition to teaching um, and doing that training, I have, uh, 
I have an active program of research. Um, and so there's really no typical day for someone like me because every day is some mixture of, uh, you know, of those kind of teaching, supervising, researching activities. Um, but then, you know, there's also epidemiologists who work out in the field, so to speak, um, in what are called health units. Um, so the province, I'm not sure if you know, but the province is split up into 34 public health units. Okay. And so, again, just as you have doctors and hospitals taking care of individual patients, you have these health units that are taking care of groups of people, populations of people. Um, so, for example, in the city of Toronto, that's all one health unit. Uh, and it's the only one in the province where there's sort of one city covered by one health unit right. um, because, because of its size. And then the rest of the province is kind of split up into 33 other health units. So, so in this pandemic, epidemiologists are really part of the public health response. They're the, the numbers people usually. Um, uh, and usually public health decision makers like medical officers of health, uh, they have a background in epidemiology because they have to be capable of understanding how to use that science. So you mentioned that there are 34 units uh, amongst the country. Uh, you could consider at the province. Uh, at the province, I'm sorry. So, uh, yeah. uh, so with regards to uh, a, a national landscape, uh, when they uh, take a look at a city like Toronto, whether you want to compare um, a Toronto to a Montreal to a Vancouver and so on, is there? I, I mean, I don't know if you are able to uh, to comment, but is there? an overwhelming similarity from major metropolis to uh, a similar size of uh, rural community? Um, so I'm not really clear in the question. So, yeah, do you want to maybe just rephrase? Yeah, no, I'm wondering, like, in terms of uh, uh, findings from a city of Toronto, say, to uh, one of uh, Montreal, like, uh, is there a lot more considerable similarities from major metropolis to major metropolis or uh, different city, different uh, mannerisms, different uh, way of life? Is there... Uh, uh, I mean, it, it, there, there's going to always be some similarities um, that are related to the urban nature of, of life in a big city. Um, so the fact that there's so much more um, built environment, so much more traffic pollution, um, so much less green space typically... Um, these are all kind of risk factors for different parts of our, our well-being. Um, you know, much more dense living. You're living around other people in, in more close proximity. Um, but then there's always going to be some differences. So, um, you know, you, some, some cities are in different provinces, and so there's differences in legislation uh, about how cities are run, um, and that's going to affect, you know, the health of those people. Um, there's also going to be other kind of city-level governments that are, the, the governments at the city levels are going to be kind of different in how they act and, and regulate people. Uh, there's going to be differences in climate. So it's kind of a mixture. You know, there's going to be some things that are you expect to be the same and some things that you expect to vary. So uh, I, I have to ask, as a, as a perhaps a younger guy going through undergrad, uh, maybe beforehand when you started to take note of uh, this particular industry that you're now in and this field. Uh, like, I guess, first of all, how would you uh, surmise the last couple of months? With that said, did you ever think like something like this could happen in our lifetime? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, the, uh, the field of epidemiology is based on on tracking outbreaks, as I said, that's kind of the origin story of the whole discipline. Uh, so every epidemiologist, whether you end up being a clinical or a social or, or an outbreak epidemiologist, you learn about the story of the Broad Street pump. Um, and this was uh, this was in, in the UK. There was a cholera outbreak, and uh, in one particular part of London, uh, there was a physician who managed to trace uh, the source of this local outbreak to a water pump. Um, and that sort of, you know, they use the kinds of um, detective methods that have become kind of standard for, for tracing outbreaks. Uh, and they kind of realized that it wasn't traveling through the air at that point, that it was coming through the water system. And it helped them figure out how to effectively stop that outbreak. So you, everyone who's an epidemiologist learns that story. And so, uh, you know, I think all epidemiologists understand the power of an outbreak and how each and every agent um, so in this case, coronavirus is unique and, and just the enormity of the challenges they present for trying to figure out what's going on and how to control and treat and, and eventually cure people. Um, so 
it, it is something that you kind of are always worried about as an epidemiologist because um, there's no shortage of examples of prior outbreaks and epidemics that turn into pandemics. And uh, it's kind of just a matter of time sort of thing. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, it was reported that uh, coronavirus was a significant problem, I, I guess, uh, whether it be China or elsewhere before the holidays. And then, of course, it just uh, uh, it became a pandemic here in North America. And uh, uh, I guess really people started to take uh, drastic measures towards uh, March, uh, give or take. Uh, when did you start taking notice of COVID-19? Um, I do remember, actually, reports over the holidays. Uh, about a local outbreak in China that was worrying some people. I think the WHO is sort of talking about it late, late in December, early January. Um, but then on the other hand, you know, again, if you're an epidemiologist, you notice that sort of news. It, it was a minor news item at that point, and it does happen more than you think. Um, so I certainly didn't expect at that point that a global pandemic would happen. Um, but I do remember sort of reading um, about it and that, you know, some people were kind of worried that it could get out of hand. Yeah. And I, I mean, I guess with that said, and uh, obviously hindsight is what it is that, you know, as a guy who's not in the medical field, uh, I mean, there were strains that people took notice to, whether it was um, Ebola or SARS, uh, H1N1. Uh, I mean, obviously it wasn't as devastating as coronavirus, but uh, what was, what's the different thing, uh, differing factors of this particular strain? Yeah, so, uh, you know, I can't get into too many specifics comparing those different viruses, but uh, I, can t- I can talk about this as an epidemiologist using the kind of, of theory that we, we use for any epidemic, and that's that epidemics are dictated by three factors, um, and that's the agent, which is the, in this case, a virus, which is coronavirus, um, the host, which in this case is the human being, and uh, the environment. And that's just, you know, thinking about each and every city and country and that, that this is currently affecting um, or that any um, virus can affect. So, you know, given what the specific agent is, um, how hard is it for the human body to defend against it? And therefore, how deadly is it for the average person and for people who end up um, vulnerable um, uh, and with vulnerabilities to it? So, so the one thing about comparing coronavirus to these other strains, these other, these other viruses, is just how harmful is it to the human body. But, but that's not the only thing you need to think about. You also need to think about how easily can the agent be transmitted amongst hosts, because something can be really deadly, but it doesn't really transmit very easily. Right. Um, so you won't end up with a big pandemic. So, so with coronavirus, it's actually not very deadly. Um, uh, this is the idea of what's called a case fatality rate, or you know, what proportion of people who actually get infected end up dying. And so, for example, the, the case fatality rate of Ebola, um, the, the most recent outbreak in West Africa, I believe they're saying it was around 50%. So, you know, if you got if you got infected, there was a 50-50 chance you might pass away. Uh, I think SARS was estimated around 15%, so not as not as deadly as Ebola. Um, and then with, with coronavirus, it's, it's far too early to really know for sure. But I'm, I'm sort of seeing varying estimates from different jurisdictions, and, and it seems like it's hovering around 5% case fatality. So we're, we're actually quite lucky that it's not more deadly. Um, and we're lucky because, you know, the, the downside is that it seems to be very easily transmitted compared to other agents. Um, so as hosts, we are quite susceptible to the coronavirus. Uh, in terms of being infected. Um, and then for people who are more vulnerable than, than average for, for whatever you know, predisposing factors they have, um, like we're seeing that people with uh, respiratory conditions, if they get infected, they're, they're at much higher risk and their case fatality is going to be much higher. Um, you know, that easy transmission is, is really something to worry about. So, so if you think about, for example, something like HIV, um, HIV is only transmitted through exposure to the blood directly. Right. The sexual contact, transfusions, injection drug use, these are the main ways you get infected. And so most people are not at high risk. Uh, you can hug and kiss a person with HIV and you're not really at risk. Mm-hmm. But coronavirus is transmitted very easily um, through the eyes and the mouth. And so 
many forms of social contact need to be controlled to prevent transmission. And, and that's why it's become such a pandemic, because controlling social contact is not something that we do normally. Uh, it's not something that we've been prepared to implement. Um, and so, you know, every government has had to just sort of make this up and figure out how are we going to get people to stop transmitting this. Um, the other net bad thing about coronavirus is that it does seem to be capable of living outside of the body for a long time, and it may even be uh, sort of remain viable floating through the air um, to infect people. So it's not just that if you cough it out with some force and it hits somebody else that you might get infected, but if you cough it out, it might just float around in the air for a bit and remain viable, and that's called aerosolization. And so... You know, to me, the moment we heard early on about people on cruise ships who were being quarantined in their cabins, and right. then a week later, there were reports that they were actually, many of them were getting infected, um, it immediately reminded me of, of um, something called Legionnaire's disease, actually, uh, which, you know, they discovered that Legionnaire's disease could be aerosolized um, because they figured out that people in an apartment building who lived in separate units were getting it when there was one person with it in there. And so they realized that it was going through the ventilation system. And so that's what that, you know, when the cruise ships with, with quarantined passengers um, were getting coronavirus, I immediately thought, oh, my gosh, I wonder if this thing is going through the ventilation systems. Um, so it may well be, um, you know, that's just another facet of how easy it is to spread around. And, and I think that's kind of why we're in, in this situation. Now, uh, sorry, correct me if I'm wrong, because uh, I guess it was towards the middle of March, and I believe that uh, one cruise ship was uh, docked off of Japan, but there was multiple cruise ships since, and uh, whether there is a, uh, I'm pretty sure all active cruise ships are have uh, now been postponed, but wasn't uh, their cruise ships uh, as late as late April or middle of April that... Uh, did quarantine itself with passengers inside? Do you recall when uh, the last ship may have uh, was docked with people quarantining in the ship? Yeah, I mean, I I have a I have a colleague whose parents were still on a ship, you know, maybe three four weeks ago, and they only then got discharged. They'd been on that ship for a long time. Um, yeah, so I think it's uh, they have been quarantining. And, and the nice thing about it is that. Um, you know, it is a, a cruise ship is a contained system generally. There's not a lot of off and on. So if, if you're, you know, most cruise ships are going to be fine because there is nobody with coronavirus on them. But if, you know, if you happen to be one of those ships where there is somebody with it, then it could just turn into, you know, a wildfire situation. So and uh, so with that said, uh, cruise ship, uh, ventila- shared ventilation systems, is the same thing go for uh, apartment buildings, condo towers of that nature? Yeah, I mean, these days, like, our the ventilation systems in, in most modern buildings are very kind of high quality in terms of the filtration, and um, and so I think it's probably not a huge concern in that sense, but I kind of suspect that cruise ships have a more rudimentary um, uh, system, and probably some more than others. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, it, it's speculation, uh, and it would be interesting to see, and I have actually seen some people is it is it capable of floating around being aerosolized and um, as far as I know we still don't know the answer to that um, but if it can be aerosolized then uh, this is the, the third factor I was talking about the the, the agent the host and the environment right and certain environments are just going to be uh, really difficult to to control um, to control uh, transmission and I think this is kind of where um, sports leagues are really challenged because you know, how can you bring back sporting events when you've got this necessary environment where people are sitting, you know, right next to each other? Uh, that's generally how sporting events happen, right? And that's an environment where transmission could just be um, rampant. Yeah, and uh, and uh, we're definitely going to get to uh, the actual sports facilities uh, momentarily. Uh, really fascinated on what your uh, thoughts are specific to that, but... Uh, you know, when restrictions uh, will be loosened, uh, you can imagine that it's going to be a slow, gradual process. And as this happens and uh, people are starting to go back to a similar routine that they did, say, five, six months ago, what concerns jump out the most to you? 
Um, I think it's sort of the the unknown. Um, so you know, we we haven't had a pandemic like this in in my lifetime. I mean, you, you could say that SARS was a pandemic, uh, but but the level of transmission and infection and the ne- the need for such a a severe response. We've never had to do this before, and so uh, we're making it up as we go along. And I think what we've done to date is figure out over the last couple of months, you know, a, a pretty reliable system. And, and as long as people are willing to stick to that, um, it, it's really flattening the curve, as they say. And it's capable of flattening the curve. If you have people who are not uh, obeying those orders, and that, then you're going to have a problem. But you know, I think we figured out how to work with the situation. And so as we reopen um, society, as we try to sort of get the economy going again, um, there's just a whole other wave of, for me, unknowns. Um, how do you, uh, you know, we're going to talk about sports. How do you bring back sporting events? How do you bring back concerts? How do you bring back just the regular um, day and daily interactions in businesses that have been closed? Um uh, and, and so, okay, when it comes to, like, the average business, you've got a template because drug stores and, and the beer store and grocery stores have stayed open, and so those businesses can learn from those people. But, you know, the, there's a lot of unknowns. So, you know, when you think about these big group activities, um, different types of environments that people are going to be mixing in, parks versus uh, rec centers, um, how do you do that effectively? And it's all going to be trial and error because we've never had to do this before. So... So I think that's what worries me is that um, we are going to, uh, I would say with certainty, we are going to see um, little, hopefully small um, epidemics come back um, over time because there's just too many unknowns um, for us to get it perfect um, first time around. So I think that's kind of the, the one fear. I think the other big fear is that, you know, people, the average person, we've really gone through a lot over the last couple of months. There's no denying that. And one of the things we've generally done is learn how to behave uh, right. behave in a way that doesn't put ourselves and doesn't put other people at risk. And, um, you know, that's going to potentially, we're, we're potentially going to get lazy because as we, you know, go back to some of the activities that we, we do normally in the kind of life in summertime, man, it's going to, it's going to feel so good to be out there and we might get lazy and we might kind of put our guard down. And again, it could sort of, it, it will probably lead to a little bit more infection happening again. Um, and then we'll have to do it, you know, another round of learning and, and training ourselves and, and figuring out how to, how to behave well. Well, and, and, and that said, and I, I don't know if this is, uh, you know, adding to uh, what you had just said, but is there a training of one's immune system, especially if they did take uh, the uh, cell, uh, physical distancing to that level for, uh, a guy like myself, my routine was driving uh, 40 kilometers to my office and then uh, during the weekends, whether it be going to a friend's house, going to a restaurant, uh, the past couple of months, I for one have either gone to the grocery store, but that's few and far between, haven't seen family, uh, haven't obviously been to sporting events. Is there a sort of re-education of the immune system as well that, uh, hey, we're in different uh environments now as opposed to just being in your house for the past three four months um yeah so i'm not an immunologist so i can't really answer this question with a high degree of expertise but i do study asthma which is a um, a disease of an out of control immune system and and so what i know from studying that disease it would suggest that um for most adults there our immune systems are not going to be um terribly altered by two months of social isolation. Uh, I think, you know, your immune system really develops and, and does a lot of learning, um, critical learning, you know, to, to keep you developing into a healthy child and adult in the first couple of years of life. And so I think if anyone, it might be, um, you know, newborns um, and very young children um, uh, who this period might end up um, affecting their immune system development because they've been kept relatively sheltered and not getting exposed to uh, the normal mixture of, of agents out there. Um, but I wouldn't think that an adult would, would really have a, a huge um, change in their immune system function with just a couple of months. I think if it was like a, a couple of years maybe, but you know, I can't really say that with, with too much expertise. 
I see. No, uh, understood. Uh, so uh, let's uh, talk a little bit of sports and I guess uh, the potential operation of how sports may uh, come back to the fold. Uh, the UFC actually did have an event in Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, it was uh, the first event uh, in North America, uh, obviously, over the past couple of months. Uh, team sports, however, such as uh, MLS, NBA, uh, NHL are looking at a number of possible ways of uh, restarting. Uh, their seasons again, uh, whether it's playing in front of empty stadiums, uh, playing at a fraction of a, of an arena's capacity, uh, playing in neutral sites. For example, uh, the NHL, who doesn't have a team in uh, the province of Saskatchewan, uh, that they were thinking of uh, having uh, games in Saskatoon, North Dakota, etc. Is one more realistic than the other? Uh you know, I can remember when the when the pandemic was declared and and pro sports was still happening, and then and then the league started to toy with the idea of ending seasons. And I remember thinking, like, of course, <laughs> they have to close these leagues. You've got large groups of people, players and staff, crisscrossing major metropolitan areas, crossing international borders, many many times over each week. It's it's basically an epidemics generator. It's like if you wanted to spread an epidemic, that's what you would do. You would keep team sports going. So, um, so suffice to say, I think there's a lot of potential risks to bringing pro sports back. Uh, and I don't think it's impossible, but I think it has to be really seriously considered. And, and again, never, never done anything like this. So um, it needs to be seriously considered, and there needs to be uh, a lot of monitoring and evaluation. You know, in the in the research world, we call it monitoring and evaluation, where you just want to be really carefully focused on what's happening and how is, is this working? Is what we've, we're trying, is it working out? Is it not? Um, so I don't know precisely what the right path forward is, but uh, I do know that, you know, I suspect we're going to reopen pro sports sooner or later. Um, I suspect, um, and, I, and, I, and I think it needs to be done really carefully and it needs to be um, monitored and evaluated. So I think playing in front of empty stadiums is a really good start um, because I, I just can't imagine how you have fans social distancing, um, obviously with a full arena, but even playing with half-capacity arenas. Um, you can seat them as far apart from each other as you want, but still getting thousands, you know, still thousands of people in and out of a stadium fed, uh, using uh, the restroom, um, it's going to introduce just the right amount of chaos into the proceedings, and you'll have to accept that people are going to be in social contact and there will be transmission happening at these games. And so you'll have to live with that level of transmission, and um, that's going to spread harm and, and death. And, you know, you're going to have to decide, is that worth having pro sports back? Um, or is there a more careful way to do it so that um, you can avoid that? What I would say is you're going to expect that harm. So is there another way to kind of remove ourselves from that, causing that harm. Um, so I would say uh, empty stadiums is a really good start. Um, then if you, you know, if you want to keep allowing teams to travel around a country um, or you know, across, across countries, you're going to have to live with some of that. So even if you only have teams playing, teams and their staff, you're still going to have to live. Um, uh, I, I'm sorry, even if, you, even if you do go with empty stadiums, keep it to teams and staff who are involved um, but you don't limit it to one site. You're still going to have mm -hmm. um, transmission moving around. Um, the virus is going to end up in places where it wasn't or where it was in, present in a very low amount, and you're going to cause local epidemics that weren't there. Um, and so every, every city that's involved in pro sports is going to be at risk. Mm -hmm. And I think that the challenge there for something like in the U.S., you know, they have a system where each and every state is governed um, quite independently, um, including when it comes to health measures. And so it's really hard to get any sort of consistency. I, I would imagine it would be really hard to get um, the governors of every state involved in the NBA or the NHL to agree to certain rules and regulations. You, you, maybe you could do it with some time and negotiation, but that would be a really monumental effort just so that you could run the league in a safe way. Um, so I think that there, you know, you'd have to live with all this variation across the environment 
whenever a pro sports team was in a certain city. And again, it would just mean that, sure, maybe in some cities those games would go off with little to no transmission, but in other places things would not go so well. So so I think that the best kind of option is to have empty stadiums and, um, and having them go to neutral sites. Um, so that you don't have that movement across countries and continents. Um, and, you know, then if you're going to do that, neutral sites, um, and I would say limit it to as, as small a number of sites as you can get away with. So, you know, with the NHL, what's the what's the smallest number of, of professional-sized ice rinks that you need, and where can you find those? Can you find those in one city somewhere? Do it there. Maybe you need to go to two cities, okay, but try to limit it to the smallest number of cities, and I would actually think that the best strategy might be to think about every season like the Olympics um, without an audience. So have all your players and staff living together in isolation in like a sort of athlete's village. Um, you'd want to be testing players and staff regularly because there's going to be a lot of social contact happening at those games. Sure. Um, on the field, on the ice, but also behind the scenes with trainers, with uh with other types of staff catering, people have to eat. Um, and and when you find somebody who tests positive, you've got to quarantine them and do what's called contact tracing. You've got to figure out who might have been in contact with that person, test them immediately, and potentially quarantine them. And so, you know, is that something that that league owner, uh, team owners are going to be fine with? Because seasons are going to be very unpredictable in terms of who's playing on a given night. Um, it might be that somebody from another team tests positive and, oh, we had a game with them and our starting lineup now has to be tested and potentially quarantined. Right. Um, so really how feasible is it going to be to have like a fulfilling, um, season that fans are going to say, yeah, this is worth, uh, uh, I'm trying to think of the business model here. If you don't, if you don't, if you're not selling tickets to games, you're going to be um, selling it to a network or maybe selling subscriptions to fans, and are people going to want to pay for, for kind of like a lackluster season where their their you know their favorite players aren't playing from from night to night? And um, yeah, and then you know the other thing I was thinking about, Randy, is is for all the entertainment um, and the and the, the I guess the wealth that would be created by opening up team sports again, the people who are at risk are going to be the players and the staff. And so I think that that decision needs to really involve um, players, unions, um, the unions of the staff, the trainers. Um, there needs to be a real kind of buy-in that, that everyone's okay with trying this out because it's not going to be the owners who are going to end up at risk. Um, and so, you know, it's going to be the players, it's going to be their families, um, trainers, their families. And so I think it's, it's a really interesting um, thing to think about. I mean, when, when I knew I was going to come here, I started to sit down and think about it. And I do think it's probably possible to try it out, but there's a lot of things to think about. Well, yeah. And, and that's just it. I mean, there's just so many moving parts. If you remember, uh, how, uh, really the NBA, uh, took, uh, this situation, it was after one of its, uh, players, Rudy Gobert tested positive, who was in the arena and, uh, they found out that he had it. And then, as the players were in warm-up, they a word got out that he tested positive. The game was canceled, and then uh, the NBA then followed suit, postponing games going forward. And uh, you, you know, you could just imagine uh, how uh, some of these players have the individual decision to make on uh, simply how comfortable they are in terms of playing their respective sports again. That if it was the uh, fourth line center in hockey or the uh, number one all-star on the team that uh, you know there's uh, decisions that w- could cost a season and as uh, trivial as that may sound the reality is is that there is uh, just so many decisions uh, that uh, so many uh, different people have to make and you mentioned about neutral sites that uh, baseball really has a has a history of Playing in neutral sites, of course, their preseason spring training is uh, in either Florida and Arizona, and whether they are able to play in uh, in some sort of uh, modified season, definitely uh, very interesting to interesting to observe. Um, with that said, and of course, it will come a time where 
uh, stadiums will reopen to the public and open at its uh, regular capacity. And of course, hindsight being what it is, uh, whether you thought that uh, stadiums uh, needed to overhaul certain uh, health and safety practices for the uh, well-being of their patrons, uh, do you think that uh, certain measures will now take place uh, after experiencing uh, this pandemic uh, firsthand? Yeah, I mean, you know, I I think as long as there isn't a cure and there isn't what we call herd immunity, which is where the number of people um, who are at risk for getting it, um, who are the people who haven't been infected before and haven't developed some sort of immunity, once that gets to a certain low enough number, um, so as long as there isn't herd immunity and there isn't a cure, um, then there would have to be measures for any and all public activities, including sports events. Um, and so more than just kind of rules and regulations, I think we'll be policing ourselves. So like there, there are going to have to be rules and regulations that governments and leagues, sports leagues, um, you know, malls, um, any kind of public setting, you're going to have to have rules and regulations to control people. But we're also going to be policing ourselves long after this. Um, you know, handshaking, right? <laughs> um, yeah. You, you, already, you already hear people talking about, like, I don't know if I'm going to be shaking so many hands after this is all, all said and done. And um, and the thing is that we're kind of creatures of comfort and, had, and habit, so it's, it's going to take time to find a new normal where we're okay with the, the prior level of social contact that we were, at least for some people. Um, so I think there's going to be a legacy of, of rules and regulations, and there's going to be a legacy of, you know, our own kind of policing our behaviors. And then, you know, I think the other problem in the long term uh, is that we're going we're gonna to stay, um, you know, we, we've gotten used to being socially isolated over the last couple of months. And I think once we get back to some sort of normal, um, I think we're going to see a lot of people remain fairly socially isolated. Um, because, you know, they've realized that working from home is feasible and they're, you know, Twitter just announced that oh, people can work from home now. Um, this is this is working out fine for us. But, you know, as a, as a epidemiologist, we know that social isolation is bad for your health for a variety of reasons, um, psychological reasons, um, but also um, sort of more biomedical reasons and so um, and social reasons. So I think that that's the other kind of longer term impact um, that's going to kind of affect isolated even when we can mix around just because the people are are kind of a bit afraid and would just rather stay by themselves or because we're we're creatures of habit and like we just don't do as much mixing as as we used to because we're so used to living this way now so so i i do have to ask uh i could only imagine that the sport itself and you uh, somewhat alluded to it uh, uh earlier makes a huge difference uh because uh, some sports are more uh, intimate and closer together than others. You think of uh, opposition is so close physically together, like uh, a basketball, a soccer, hockey. But then you have uh, sports like uh, baseball, where there is a common sharing of a ball from person to person. Uh, but you think of a sport like tennis, where uh, you know two people, uh, as well as, I guess, ball staff and so on, are... Uh, sharing a ball and uh, and so on. So, uh, uh, with that said, like, I mean, sports itself has a certain schedule that uh, baseball usually starts uh, its regular season in the beginning of April, and uh, hockey, basketball is in the autumn. I'm assuming that uh, the sport itself plays a huge factor on when it can actually uh, host games again, and perhaps. Is there a possibility that uh, one sport may be able to, but another sport shouldn't? Mm. Yeah, um, I think that uh, there is going to be some variation across different sports just because of how much risk they they kind of pose uh, for transmission. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I and then there's also so I think that's you know the question of social contact, and so football. Um, you know, baseball, you are all kind of touching the same ball. Tennis, you're all kind of, many people are touching the same ball. Um, versus something like golf, where 
maybe you could play that in a very socially isolated way. And because it's totally outdoors, um, you know, even though you're all stepping up to the same tea area, um, maybe, uh, you, you know, you're not really directly touching um, something that somebody else has touched. And as long as players take care to not touch their, their face, um, you could probably control, control things. I think you'd also want to, like I said, um, think about different sports in terms of how feasible it is to uh, isolate, like quarantine people who are playing, um, rapidly test them and, and quarantine them from other people if you need to. Um, how easy is it to kind of make sure you've got a quote-unquote clean stock of players come game time? Because if everyone is uninfected and you, you can verify that um, through testing, then there's really no risk. Like if, if you and me get tested, Randy, and, and we both fight, figure out that we don't have coronavirus and, you know, after that point we don't interact with anyone else and we just go and play a game of squash together, I'm not worried about getting anything. Right. Um, it, it's more about the uncertainty of, of well, has, has somebody gotten it since they were tested? So that's why I say, you know, this idea of athletes' villages, maybe where anyone who's in there is undergoing regular rapid testing and we know that they're okay if they're going to be playing. Um, that's going to be easier to do or harder to do with certain sports. Um, you know, golf is something where you kind of need to travel around because the course is the whole thing. You can't just keep playing the same course. So golf, you know, even though I said it's easier to social distance people, it's harder to, uh, I think, keep people um, disease-free because that means um, golfers are going to have to travel around the country each time they play an event, and that's going to put them at risk. And so then every time you have an event, you're going to have to retest everyone, give them a few days to make sure you get the test results back, see who's clean, who's not. Uh Oh, this player turned out to be half coronavirus. Well, who did they get in touch with over the last few days since we've been on site at the new course? Okay, well, now those people have to, you know, be be quarantined. And so so I think there are um, things to think about like that with different sports. Um, in terms of how feasibly you can run a safe event. Uh, I think there's also differences in physical activity. So, you know, some things like basketball are a lot more physically demanding than sports like golf. And so, um, no diss to golfers. Uh, <laughs> well, I, actually, uh, and that's, uh, I'm actually a golfer and uh, took part in a league and uh, the league coordinators actually sent an email saying that we're going we're gonna to get our league going once uh, the golf course is open. And I'm wondering uh, if that's really a good idea. <laughs> yeah, um, and, and I don't actually know the answer to this, but you know, are there differences in terms of the level of physical activity and whether you're more or less vulnerable to being infected, or if you do get infected, to, to having a rough ride? So that might be another factor to think about with different sports: is how physically demanding is it, and it, and does that matter? Because um, that would distinguish um, different sports. Um, I think those are really the two things: is the you know the enforcement of social distancing, and the um, the other big variation is, is kind of how demanding they are, um, and so how 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 feasible is it? I think um, you are going to see differences there with different sports. Hmm. So uh, finally, I, I do have to ask, as uh, as an academic, as a medical professional, such as you are, that there are a lot of theories out there. Uh, you know, that people should be taking this as serious as possible, that it's only uh, as uh, just severe for the elderly or ones with less compromised uh, systems, that uh, this pandemic is overblown altogether. Uh, you know, for myself personally, I do not Google medical afflictions. I don't have the education to uh, decipher what's uh, real or legitimate, what's fake. And you just uh, hear a lot of theories that are out there. Um, for someone who has the knowledge, uh, who is educating uh, leaders of tomorrow, and uh, how do you determine a legitimate source and uh, or theory? And how do you go about that uh, as you build your lectures and uh, of the sort? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. I mean, you know, as an epidemiologist that's part of your training is, is being trained to understand uh, the strengths and the limitations of different types of research and, and different specific examples of research. So, 
you know, we refer to it as study quality. Um, and that's so that we can go out there and design good studies. Um, and also because we're always out there using other people's research, so we need to be trained to, to recognize the, the better studies from the worst studies. Um, but, you know, I'll say it's not really a simple test of this is garbage and this is great. Um, every study, if it's been published in a peer-reviewed journal, then it has some level of merit and there's something worth learning from it. That's, that's the idea anyway. And, and it's really more what are the particular strengths and limitations of a given study and what are you interested in getting out of it? And, are, you know, do those strengths or limitations, uh, are they sort of relevant to, to what you want to get out of it? Um, so there's, there's a variety of things we learn about and that we're trained in to, to recognize. Um, so, for example, uh, one of the things that most people don't think about is who funded the research. Um, so when you get funding from, uh, in Canada, the CIHR, the Canadian Institutes for Health Research, um, the CIHR has no kind of horse in the race. They're not really... Um, it, it, they're not really compromised in terms of what are they funding versus what are they not. Um, but you do see a lot of research that's funded, say, by the food industry or the tobacco industry. Um, and if you see a study that's about um, tobacco smoke and, and whether or not it's harmful or healthy or, uh, and it's funded by a tobacco company, you should be highly suspicious of it. <laughs> um, uh, likewise, studies about you know the effects of sugar or the effects of salt, if they're funded by a food industry group, um, you should be suspicious. Um, another dimension is you know was the study peer reviewed? So um, a lot of most research is published in peer reviewed journals. Where you know as a researcher, if you do a study and you want to get it published in the journal, it has to be um, read by an editor and usually two or three of your peers out there. Um, there's no, you, know, you can't have a conflict of interest. These are people who are independent of you, but who are trained to review your study, and they decide whether or not your study is going to get published. And, and along the way of going through peer review, you usually change um, and, and improve, I should say, your, your study in many different ways um, because of the advice of the people reviewing your work. Um, so, uh, but, but, you know, there's a lot of research that's done without peer review. Um, so, um, again, many organizations will, um, you know, there's nothing stopping them from hiring somebody to do a study and then publishing the findings and, and you can find it on the internet and they'll publish it on their websites and they'll send it to all their members and then that research gets out there. Um, so was it, was something peer reviewed or not? If it's, if it's been peer reviewed, I feel a lot better about using it because I know that several other highly trained people uh, had a go at this before it was able to be published. And if it wasn't very good, then it wouldn't have been published. Right. Um, it doesn't mean that, you know, there aren't examples of things that get through peer review that aren't very great, but um, this is the system we've set up, and I, I, I trust it to, to some extent. Um, you know, another big one is uh, who is allowed in the study in terms of the people um, under examination um, and who eventually ended up participating. So um, there can be a lot of bias that's created uh, in, a, in, in what you find um, because you have a selected group of people that you ended up studying. So I think I, I'm kind of speaking off the cuff here, but I do remember that the, um, uh, the drug that Donald Trump was all hyped about, uh, and I think he may have had a stake in it or something, uh, was it Coroquine or something? And, and he was saying that, you know, this, this is really promising. And, uh, that, that, and sorry, know, that was... Uh, that, that it's a, it's a miracle cure. Um, well, I'm fairly certain I read about that study and that um, they were relatively healthy people very early in infection um, that were in that study. And so, you know, maybe in that study, that one study that was published, you find something interesting. But in that case, you know, it didn't include older people. It didn't include people who were immunocompromised in other ways. Um, and so is this drug the answer? Probably not. Maybe it could play a role for some people, but um, it wasn't presented like that, right? It was presented as here's a miracle drug. This is going to save us all. Um, and so, you know, that's the other thing to think about when you're trying to decide what research to use in your own studies or to, in your lectures is, looking for more than just one interesting study. You kind of want to see a pattern of, 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 stud, of studies indicating something similar before you say, okay, this is something that's really kind of 
um, real and something worth sharing with, with students in the next generation. Um, it doesn't mean there's not some exciting, interesting, critical discussions to be had about, you know, these minor studies that come out uh, that are thought-provoking, but uh, you certainly do want to be a good critical thinker, and, uh, and uh, actually, uh, this is maybe getting a bit too boring, but... No, 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 not at all, please. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, there is, there's a, a, a researcher from the UK, Sir Bradford Hill, who uh, he, he was active, I think, in the 50s and 60s, and, and he uh, published at one point these criteria for causation, which have become a bit of a bedrock in epidemiology where, you know, it's, I think it's maybe eight or nine different um, things to think about, essentially, when you're trying to decide whether... Um, uh, you know, findings of a study really are real, or whether they might be um, just a, a coincidence or, or something random. Um, so there are like a whole host of, of specific things we're trained to think about, and, and so you try to apply those as well as you can uh, when you're when you're teaching or you're in practice. Yeah, uh, Doctor Shankar, this has uh, been really great. I, I just can't thank you enough for uh, for the time that you uh, you spent and. Uh, Really want to wish uh, you and your family all the very best, and thank you again for for joining me today. Great. Well, thanks so much for inviting me, Randy. It was a pleasure. Dr. Kathan Shankardas is a professor of epidemiology at Wilfrid Laurier University. We'll be back right after this. Hey, all Randy here, and as the weather gets warmer, I hope you will take the necessary precautions as we continue with life while dealing with the coronavirus pandemic. Look, I'm not a doctor, and believe me, I am craving the days where I could spend time with all of my family and friends. All I can hope is that you and yours are keeping well, maintaining a true sense of responsibility, and hopefully we can return to our normal way of life soon. Take care. My thanks again to Dr. Kathan Shankardas for joining me today, and I really hope you enjoyed this episode of What's Up the Sports podcast. It was really a great thrill to get an expert's opinion on these incredible times. Uh, these are days we'll never forget, and I hope you're coping with strength each and every day. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at What's Up Podcast. That is, of course, with one P. I'm Randy Kure, and we'll talk to you next time.